Psalm 145 is a call to worship and praise the Lord. And as such, it's good. It's good for us to remember that our Lord is worth worshiping. As you get to Psalm 145, you'll realize that it's about 21 verses. And I say that because you'll see at the end of verse 13, there's a verse in brackets if your translation is like mine, some verses, um, some translations don't include it. Uh, there's a little bit of a textual issue. This is an acrostic text. So you have the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, working as uh, the launching of every first word in the Hebrew verses. So you start with the equivalent of A and B to start out the verses. Maybe something like you would see in a, a kindergarten Christian school classroom where, at least if it was like my upbringing, A, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. B, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Well, in similar fashion, the Hebrew uh, alphabet is the outline for this text, but there's no noon or the equivalent of of, uh, the English N. And so someone has has put it there, and it's frankly an ancient tradition. Jesus' Greek Greek Old Testament would have included this verse, Um, but it seems not to be part of the Hebrew manuscript. I just say that so as we read it together, you, you understand why it has brackets. Scripture begins saying, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. I think that's really the theme of the psalm. It's a call to praise, to join the psalmist. This is the last psalm that is written by David in in the collection of the psalms. We call it the Book of Psalms or the Psalter. It's his last writing that's recorded. And probably when the compilation, when they were put in order, this is the one that, that last bears his name. It's a call to worship God. It's a call to praise and join the psalmist in praise and exaltation of who our God is and what he's accomplished. If you think in terms of outline, in, in verse 1, you have this word bless. I will bless. And then in verse 10, you'll see the, the progression He says, all your work shall give thanks to you, Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. So it's initially the psalmist saying, I'm going to bless you. Then it's not just, I'm blessing you. Now it's all of God's people, all God's loyal believers should bless him. And then the last phrases of the psalm, the second part of verse 21, let all flesh bless your holy name forever and ever. So it goes from the psalmist as an individual to all of God's people to all living beings in creation, worshiping and exalting God. God is worth worshiping. There's a moral imperative to this idea. In as much as if you were maybe taking a stroll, we have a little dog every once in a while we have to walk, and you can imagine that if you're out walking your dog, and you see a little child playing in the street, and you can tell there's a distracted driver cruising for that little child, there is a moral imperative on you to rescue that child from its impending death. You dive out in the street and you save the child because it's right to rescue this innocent child from a distracted driver. How much more, the psalmist lays in front of us, our responsibility to worship the God of God's. That we dare not see our God in his glory and majesty and fail to worship him. So the psalmist writes this glorious psalm of praise. 
that we might join him in worshiping our God. As you look in that initial, um, the, the initial few verses and he begins this call to worship, he says, I will extol you or praise you, my God and King. And both of those identities, both as divine being and kingly being, God is identified and exalted. Every day, he says, I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever, both exhaustively every day and comprehensively, never-ending. God is worth worshiping. That is, you know, sometimes we can accomplish a task and check it off our list. God's worship is never complete. He is always worth worshiping. And it's not as though he merely gets it once a year. Every day, every part of our lives should be given in worship to God. So this introduction is a commitment by the psalmist, a vow that his life would be filled daily with worship and exaltation of God. So why does he worship God? Initially, you see in verses 3 through 7, because of God's great deeds. God is worth worshiping. He's worthy of praise because of his great deeds. Look with me in verse 3 again. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. As you consider these, you see this this expression of verbal praise, right? That God's greatness is to be greatly praised. One generation commends, that's to verbally praise to another generation. There's a declaration of the mighty acts at the end of verse four. You come down to verse six. uh, His acts speak. So the psalmist then declares. In verse seven, they pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. There's this this expectation that because of God's great, powerful, majestic personage, he also deserves great and powerful praise. In other words, our praise should be fitting. A wimpy God gets wimpy praise. How much more a great God who we serve deserves great praise. Great is the Lord, therefore greatly deserving of praise. His greatness is unsearchable. The psalmist then says in verse 5, on your glorious splendor, on your wondrous deeds, I will meditate. There's a call to consider, to think. And perhaps just as a side note, I think one of the tragedies of our modern worship is how thoughtless it is. What generates and energizes worship, the horsepower of worship, is a theology that's thoughtful. Right, like I will meditate. This is what leads him to praise. Is a consideration of the greatness of God, the majesty of God, and his mighty works. Notice that's not even personal at this point for David. This is just the contemplation of God's work and his power and what he has accomplished in the world calls the psalmist to just consider and praise. This is what the end of Job does for us. God summons Job to consider all that he accomplishes. And he speaks of moving the constellations in their path. 
So consider the greatness and the power of our God, that he is not only holding the stars in existence, he is managing their movements through the universe in ways that were unknown to the astronomers of that age. And now with massive telescopes, we see stars that no human eye has ever seen or ever worshipped God before because they hadn't seen them. And now we can worship God for the sight of them. We meditate on the grandeur of God, his bigness. We recognize that every cell is manufactured by him. He's big not only in the vastness of this universe, but he's big in the fact that he holds every molecule of the universe together by the word of his power. It's not that he's just the cosmic God. He is the cosmic God of the microscopic things. That's amazing. God was holding those cells together before the word cells was invented. Before a microscope was thought of that could view those cells. And I imagine that were eons to move forward and we would, we would massively eclipse the knowledge we have now. Our worship for God could get richer for all that he does in his greatness. One generation shall commend your works to another. Again, the moral obligation is not only to worship God directly, but to worship God by testimony. How are your children supposed to know of this great God? You tell them. And particularly in an era in which the scriptures were not um, filling every home. I mean, how many Bibles do you possess? How many translations do you have just on your phone? Somewhat shameful and embarrassing for many of us that they may have known their Bibles better and they didn't have one copy in most homes. So how do you make sure your children grow up and believe in this great God? You testify, you speak, you challenge, you encourage, and you point to the world he has made that declares his majesty. Psalm 1 makes it clear that God's divine power is seen in creation. So at least the farmer in Israel who may not have held the text of the Old Testament in his hands could point to the majesty of God in governing and moving and making all of the world around them, of bringing up the plants to feed his family and of watering that plant from the skies. God could be spoken of and ministered, the children could be ministered to by the testimony of the parents. Generation shall commend your works. Verse 6, they speak of the might of your awesome deeds, so I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Creation declares that God is glorious, and his people should too. God is great. He has saved Israel. He has parted the Red Sea. He has broken down the towns of Jericho. He has conquered armies. He has slain giants through the ministry of his people. God has done great works. How much more are those of us who stand on the other side of the cross, the greatest work over the greatest enemy, are able to testify not only in the corporate gathering as we sing together, but perhaps in the privacy of your car or your shower, you can sing the mighty works of God. Do you testify of his greatness to your children? Do you teach one generation to another? Do you sing the glories of God because he's great? God is deserving of praise because of his works, because of his mighty acts, because of his wondrous works, because of his awesome deeds. 
Not only that, we praise God because of his loving deeds. Not only are they deeds that display his power, his bigness, his omnipresence, and the wealth of resources at his disposal, the God who moves and acts is good. Look in verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's almost a direct quote from Exodus 34.6. Let me read Exodus 34.6 while you're looking at Psalm 145.8. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, that's God speaking to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's almost word for word the same verse, isn't it? There's one distinction. God has abundant love in Exodus. Here that word for abounding and steadfast love is two Greek words, and it's the word for great love. Steadfast love is actually one word in the Hebrew, and it speaks of the kind of covenant love that binds one in long-term faithful relationships. So you'll see something like faithful love or steadfast love. It's that one word chesed in Hebrew. But, but here's the point. It's a great love. So he's just talked about God's great deeds. And now the psalmist takes from Exodus and says, rather than just abounding in love, he has a great steadfast love for you. And he compares it to the great works of God in, such, in so doing. The Lord is good, verse 9 says, to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Before we consider verse 9, this great king of verse 1 is described in verse 4 as one, excuse me, verse 3 as the great Lord who is greatly to be praised. And now in verse 8, he has great love. Here's the quality of our God. He is great in works and great in love. So who is the recipient of this love? Verse 9, the Lord is good to whom? Now, when you couple that with verse 8, it should humble all of us. doesn't say to his saints. It will say that later. God is good to all. To all. The air that everyone in this world is breathing the common health of most people, the food that fills this planet and feeds the hungry is because God is good. Who is he good to? All. God is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. Who receives the mercy of the sunrise in the morning? Every creature on this earth. And from the beginning of time, when God declared, let there be light and made the sun and the moon, these lights have warmed and guided our way because God is good to all. And perhaps we know his goodness is clearly to all because when tragedy strikes, when sickness comes, when someone surprisingly dies, the world feels as though it's been robbed of something it has a right to. And why does it feel so robbed? Because God has steadfastly been good. And when he turns down the volume on that goodness just a bit, the world cries in outrage and injustice that some of its goodness has been lost. 
like spoiled brats who have no idea how generous and lavish they are being cared for by their parents. They are angry when they lose the video game for an hour. That's what our world is like on 9-11s or when COVID hits. Can you imagine just the gratitude we'll be experienced in this world if the stars went dark for 20 years and we could see them for one night out of those 20 years? How much joy and awe as we all gather in the night sky for the stars to appear one time. Perhaps we are numbed to God's goodness by its ever-presence with us. He is good. You woke up this morning because he's good. You're being chilled right now by the air conditioning because he's good. You are holding a Bible in your hands because he's good. Your children are alive because he's good. You will eat food this afternoon of varying qualities because he's good. Those of you who God doesn't like will eat shrimp. Those of you who are loved and righteous will probably have pasta. But that's only because the youth group made it. God is good. He is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. God is to be praised because of his loving deeds. His love fills this world. Christian, do not be numb to it. There's a little bit of an interlude where he hits his, third, or his, his division here. Okay, so he said, I will bless the Lord. Now he calls on the saints to bless the Lord in verse 10. All your work shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all the saints shall bless you, he says. And then he continues, and he begins to speak of God's kingdom in the next section. Look down in verse 11. It says, the glory of your kingdom, verse 12, the splendor of your kingdom. In verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So he's speaking about God's reign. When you think of kingdoms, who governs a kingdom? The king, verse 1, I will extol you, my God, and king. And perhaps you miss it, but kings govern because they have the power or the right to rule. We use the word sovereignty for that exercise of kingly power to rule. So when the psalmist reflects back on the kingdom of God, he both recognizes God sits enthroned. And, and he's in that position of king. That means he has the right to rule. He sits over this earth and rules and governs it, but he does, through so, does so through his power. That is, he exercises his kingship through dominion. So again, we look in verse 11. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. So this kingdom is glorious and it demonstrates the dominion and the power of God. To make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So you get those adjectives together, this kingdom is glorious. It displays God's power. It showcases his mighty deeds. It's glorious in splendor and majesty at the end of verse 12. Verse 13, it's everlasting. The end of verse 13 then, it will have a never-fading power. We realize that nations rise and fall. 
And it's hard not to think that our nation is declining in power, isn't it? That we have seen better days. We look back and reread the history books. We see the rise and fall of nations again and again and again. When will God's kingdom fall? When he establishes his throne, it will be established forever. I think he's talking about his universal rule. I don't think he's talking about the Davidic kingdom per se. So something like Isaiah 40 might be a parallel passage. Do you not know, says the prophet, do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth emptiness. Our God is king. And this is good, is it not? Look at the demonstration of his kingdom. There's power in it, verse 11, mighty deeds, glorious splendor, it's everlasting, and that power endures through all, energy, uh, all generations. It's a lasting kingdom. So we praise our God for his great kingship. Unmeasured, unlimited in power, never ending in glory. It demonstrates that our God is king. Then we come to verses 14 through 20. We praise God because he's a merciful king. It'd be terrifying if he was an evil tyrant. If I were to use the word tyrant, it, it, it kind of poisons the vocabulary. But he's a king who shames any dictator who thinks he has power. God's power is over everything. Therefore, we praise him not merely because he has power, but because he exercises it with goodness and mercy. We've seen bad fathers and abusive dads. We've seen authoritative and abusive officers of the law. We've seen bullies on playgrounds. We've seen bad people everywhere abuse their authority and power. Aren't you thankful your God never does? I mean, what powerful king sacrifices his son for mere servants? Our God is good. Look with me in verses 14 through 20. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him and to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. You might have caught that repetition of the word all. If you're just to scan through it, Verse 14, he upholds all who are falling, all who are bowed down. Verse 15, all look to you. Verse 16, all living things. Verse 17, all his ways, all his works. Verse 18, all who call on him, all who call on him in truth. Verse 19, excuse me, verse 20, the Lord preserves all who love him and he wrecks all the wicked. All. To whom is God kind? Do you catch it? He is king over the universe, and there's not one citizen in his universe who can look to God and say, you are not kind. You are not merciful. 
Not one can say that with integrity. Not one can say that and claim to hold the truth. God is kind to all. And that's a breathtaking statement. I mean, just meditate for a moment with me on that thought. Verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways. And kind in all his works. All of it. Have you felt sorrow? Have you doubted God's goodness in your life? Have you been broken down and responded in anger at God for something he has done or taken away or or moved in your life? Have you felt like people do you wrong and you find yourself frustrated with the world? On every one of those acts, God can point to it and say, I was kind. I was kind. I was kind. To think that the discipline of the Lord is kind. We try to discipline our children, but there's sometimes we're not kind. There's times we feed our children and they complain, and so we're like, fine, eat it. And even in our goodness, we're not kind. There is not one moment, not one movement, not one thought in God that is unkind. I killed an ant this morning. I suppose that ant has rightly thought I'm not kind if it had thoughts. I am of less significance than an ant. And God is kind enough to know my thoughts and love me still. God is kind enough to care for me, to be present with me, to be kind always in all his works. Not one thing can be laid at God's doorstep as unrighteous. Again, verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways. He's kind in all his works. If you were to go back to read verses 14, 15, and 16, there is this, um, maybe it's a generic kindness or common kindness that all men receive. Those who are falling down, those who are broken down, those who are hungry are fed by God. All, all the desires that we have are ultimately granted and satisfied in some sense only by God's grace. But it's all in the sense of common to all men. But then you come to verse 17, and, and it begins to turn the corner so that by, the, that by the time we get to 18, the Lord is near to all who do what? Call on him. And, and those who call on him only in truth. And so there's a sense of theological integrity. God is not near to the person who's internally embracing sin and calling on God in some false play-acting of worship. Right? Have you ever been or seen someone who lives like garbage all week and then assumes God listens to them with joy on Sunday morning? Who is God near to? To all who call on him, who call on him in truth. 
speaks to integrity or maybe sincerity to the one who calls. But here's this picture then. As we put the whole psalm together, we start seeing these pieces fit. This great God who stops the waters of the Red Sea, who breaks down the enemies of Israel, who feeds the whole nation with bread from heaven, is near to everyone who calls in truth. And every action of his is kind. This morning I was praying, and one of the guys praying said about prayer, it's our walkie-talkie to the commander-in-chief of the world. And I loved it for a second, and I thought, no, that's, it's even better than that. The commander is with us in the foxhole. We don't need a walkie-talkie. He's present with us. He's near. Right? The, the unbeatable, unchanging God of the universe is near. doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter what dark spiritual hole you find yourself in. God is near if you call on him in sincerity. I, I want to just plead with you all right now. I do not know what your spiritual walk is like, but if you are not someone who trusts in God with your whole heart, if you have never turned from your sin to trust in the living God, the king of the universe, he is near. You do not have to do a life of good works in order to earn salvation. Merely call on him with a heart of sincere faith, and he is near. He hears you, and he's kind. He has never said no to the repentant sinner who has turned in sincere faith. He has never once turned away a sinner, no matter how wicked the sinner be. He has never once said, no, you're beyond my grace. Not once, because he's great and gracious. Our God is wonderful. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves. He's not merely a gracious God, <clears throat> maybe like a feeble but sweet grandmother whose heart is so kind but whose strength is gone. He is not only kind, he saves with power. The Lord preserves or protects all who love him. But all the wicked he will destroy. It's a little bit of a sour note, isn't it? Like, God is great. He's this glorious, gracious, long-suffering God. His kingdom is majestic and powerful. He is kind to all. And he's near to those who turn to him. And then there's this one negative note at the end. What happens to all those who don't draw near to this God, who don't approach him in sincerity, who don't love him, who stand as enemies of this God? What does God do to them? It says he destroys them. There's a sober warning that we dare not take the gracious patience of God for granted. We do not presume that this God who's rich in mercy will be merciful to the rebel who never turns from his sin to the God of mercy. Christian, if you are playing with sin, you're in a dangerous playground. God is patient, but all the wicked he will destroy. Do not tempt the God of mercy 
by banking on his mercy as you run to sin. Stay faithful to God. He's worth it. The moral imperative is not merely that we praise God, but that we draw near to him to praise him. So he concludes with this admonition with which I want to leave you all. What should we do in light of this psalm? Psalm 145, 21. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. Could you make that commitment? What are you going to do today? I'm going to speak about how good God is. I'm going to talk about him. I'm going to brag on my king. I'm going to look at the world and see it as a testimony of his glory and goodness and sweetness and grace. When the rain comes, I will see it as God watering. When the sun comes, I will see it as God causing growth. When I wake up tomorrow, I will not presume I should have. I will thank God because maybe I shouldn't have woken up. When sickness comes, I will thank God because it reminds me that I had health. I will not get this right. I'm taking this from memory, but uh, Matthew Henry, a Puritan commentator, had been robbed on the way home from church. And he wrote four things he was thankful for. He was thankful that although he was robbed, he wasn't robbed of much. It's like, like, I had $100 in my pocket, but it could have been worse. God, thank you that it wasn't more. He was thankful that he wasn't robbed of his life. I don't remember all four, I remember three. He was thankful that he wasn't the robber. Because that could have been him. The mercy of God is so sweet. You're sitting here in a church, reading God's life-giving word in the gathering of God's redeemed people. God is so good to you. God is so faithful to us. He is kind. Can we all resolve with verse 21, my mouth will speak his praise. I have no idea what trials you're going through. It is not an indictment on God's goodness that you're going through a trial. It is, in fact, a declaration of it. Right, First Peter? You are going through many various trials if need be. The only reason you're in a trial is because God in kindness knows it is for your good to produce glory for you and for his son. Because God is so kind, he never lets a trial into your life unless it's necessary for your goodness and glory and for his son's glory and for the advancement of his son's kingdom. That's how good God is. God is so good. My mouth will speak the praises of the Lord. I think also verse 21 has a second resolve. Not only should you resolve to personally praise God, you should resolve to call others to praise God with you. Right? I will, I will praise him. And all flesh is the hope of the psalmist. Let all people, let all humanity praise God too. Evangelism should happen more for the sake of God than for the sake of the sinner. The greatest need for evangelism is not the rescue of sinners, it's the praise of God. Right? Like, Look at this verse here. Why does David want all flesh? Like, what does he want for them to do? To join him in worship. 
So we call upon the nations, we send missionaries out that they might join us in exalting God. And when they do, God redeems and saves them. He is near to all who call on him. The main purpose of missions is the glory of God through the worship of his creatures. The main purpose of this church is the glory of God and the magnification of his name through the praise and the worship and the imitation of people who love and adore their God. That's why we exist as humans. God has created us for his glory. This is the first catechism of the Westminster Catechism. What's your purpose? Why are you here? We exist to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is the sole duty of man. And so the psalm says, my mouth will speak the praises of the Lord. Let all flesh bless his holy name. And how long should this praise service last? Forever and ever. So I should probably keep preaching. Just keep you praising. I won't. It is, it is worthwhile for us to speak the praises of various blessings God's given into our lives. It's always sweet when you see a dad brag about his child. It's fun to hear people praise members within our church family for their ministry. None of us deserves praise forever and ever, except our God, who is worthy of all glory and all praise and all honor. So would you join me in praying to our God as we conclude. Father in heaven, you are glorious Your power is great. You have done wonderful things. You've hung the stars in place. You turn this earth so that every day we are warmed by the sun and we are put to sleep under the light of the moon. You bring water. You cause the plant to sprout because you're good. And in reference to sinners, your compassion is beyond understanding. Your long-suffering to sinners is the sweetest of graces. And your kingdom demonstrates your right to rule as you exercise your authority and move this world to its designed, preordained conclusions. And so we rest in the sweet sovereignty of a powerful king. He's a powerful king who is kind in all his works. So we don't only rest at peace knowing you protect us, we rest at peace knowing you're good to us. We thank you for being our king and our God. Father, I ask that you'd strengthen our church family, that with our mouth we would praise you. You'd strengthen our church family to call upon others to see your glory and your goodness your majestic power, and your kindness of being near, that we might urge all flesh, the unbeliever, the child in our home, our neighbor who does not love you, Lord, empower us to move all people to praise your name, that you might receive glory in the redemption of sinners under your saving grace. We ask these things for the glory of your Son, For the pleasure of our eternal King. Amen.